Please be seated. If you have your Bibles, uh, you can open them to the book of Jonah, the prophet Jonah. If you don't know where Jonah is in your Bible, uh, just find Obadiah, and it's just one over. Um, if that's not helpful, uh, it's on page 774 in the Pew Bibles. Uh, we're beginning this week, uh, four weeks in the Minor Prophets, starting with the prophet Jonah, and we'll be covering a lot of terrain, so bear with me. We'll be jumping through the book uh, and, and sort of taking the entire book as a whole. The book of Jonah, we'll read the first several verses and then we'll, we'll take a break and pray. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. And call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each called out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down, and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God, perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Uh, we'll stop there, pray, and then dig in. Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the message of your prophet Jonah. Lord, make it clear to us now and call us to yourself. We pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, as we look in here at the book of Jonah, uh, I think of, of two ways that are very easy uh, to ruin a good movie. There's two ways to ruin a good, actually there's several ways of ruining a good movie, but, but two main ways are this. The first way is to focus on the extras. Uh, I remember shortly after I graduated from college, I heard the rumor that uh, a friend of mine from college named Jan Gouch was an extra in the movie The Patriot. And I had seen The Patriot once, but I went to watch it again, and all throughout the movie I was watching frame by frame. There was even a, a rumor that he was a, one that suffered a particularly bad injury in one of the, the battle scenes. I won't say what it is in case there's youngsters still in the room. Uh, but I watched frame by frame. Where's Jan? Is Jan Gouch somewhere in the background? And I was watching the whole movie looking for that and very much missed uh, sort of the flow of the story, missed the main point because I was so focused on the extras. And that's a temptation for us here with Jonah. When you read... Uh, much of the commentaries, especially critical commentaries, there's much discussion and debate and a lot of ink spilt discussing uh, what was this fish? Uh, what was this whale? Maybe it was a whale. What sort was it? Could this have really happened? Where on the sea would it have been? How plausible is this? Could a man survive inside of a fish for three days? Honestly, could that really be true? And we have come up with very creative ways of explaining why that could, in fact, be possible. And uh, sure, okay, fine. But we can be very tempted to focus on the extras, to look at the details and try to figure it out. Or how could a plant grow up in a day and die in a day. That just doesn't seem plausible. Let's look at the extras. Another good way to ruin a movie is uh, not to look for extras, but to be the know-it-all, or worse, to watch it with a know-it-all, who's seen the movie before, seen it so many times. I remember the first time I watched the movie The Karate Kid. It's a young man. It was just spoiled. The whole, the whole crane at the end, if you remember, 
you know, Daniel LaRusso had hurt his ribs and Mr. Miyagi rubbed his hands together and the, the people I was watching it with, they had seen it before and they said, oh wait, Mr. Miyagi's going to rub his hands together. Daniel, he's about to do the crane, watch. Because we knew what was going to happen in the movie, that, or a movie that you've seen repeatedly, you know it backwards and forwards. You know the story, you know what's about to happen. And so it just sort of loses its value, it's lost on you. Well, that can obviously happen here with Jonah. If you've grown up in the church, you've heard this story numerous times, but probably most frequently in Sunday school when you were a small child. You know the story, you get the point. But sadly, uh, we can miss it. We can miss the glory of the story. We can miss some of the nuance, some of the irony and contrast and grace that is all over this book. So let's not ruin Jonah. Uh, let's not focus on the extras and let's not think that we've been there. Let's listen freshly and see maybe something we've never seen or appreciated in a new way. But there's a few things here that I want us to see. Uh, first, we see in the passage we just read, uh, Jonah's resistance. Jonah's resistance to the call of God. Look at verse 3. God has called him to go to Nineveh, this great city, to prophesy against them. It says, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. In one verse, the phrase to Tarshish is repeated three times. And here we see Jonah's resistance, not just general resistance, but the extremity of his resistance. Well, what's the point? Why is it repeat, to Tarshish, to Tarshish, to Tarshish? Well, God had just told him to go to Nineveh. And if you look on a map of the ancient world, basically with Israel at the center, if you look to the far east, that's Nineveh in Assyria. But as far as they knew, there was some, some land past that, but if you were to just to draw a map, that would be on the extreme side. So where's Tarshish? Now, we're not precisely sure from archaeology, but we know that basically on the maps that I've looked at, it is at the far other end of the map. It's in the exact opposite direction. This is not just resistance. This is extreme resistance. It would be as if my brother, who was just talking about going to Mexico, after we send him on with our blessings, he uh, takes a drive up to Washington, gets a plane to Dulles to go to Quebec. The exact opposite. It is extreme. It's extraordinary. But let's look farther. Verse 7. And they cast lots, the, the sailors, they cast, and they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? He's a prophet. Um, and where do you come from? Where is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. So we, we see here not just the extremity of his resistance, but the absurdity of it. Notice what he says. I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. A few verses earlier, the book told us that the waves and the sea and the storm were crashing so much that the ship was threatening to break up. You can imagine being on a boat. Yesterday, my family and I went to Jamestown. 
and we were looking at the, looking at the boats at the settlement. You can imagine being on a boat and, and the wood actually creaking. That's what it means when it says it's threatening to break up. I think this ship is going to snap in two and the sailors are throwing things overboard. He's fleeing the presence of the Lord and then when he's asked who he is, on the sea, in a boat, he says, I serve the Lord who made the sea. Even in his explanation of the question, who are you, he says who God is. He says where he is. He knows exactly where he is. There is an absurdity to his disobedience. It makes no sense. It's illogical. I'm fleeing the presence of the Lord who made everything that we're standing on. It's extraordinary. It's, it's hard to believe. It's one of the reasons some would question the authenticity of the story. It just seems so illogical. We would never do something like that, would we? Or would we? How do you resist God in an extreme way or in an absurd way? A friend of mine says that his story is very similar to Jonah's and that he knew he was called to be a pastor, he knew he was called to ministry, and he spent several years resisting that call, trying to find work in other areas where he would make more money and do his own thing, and he did not want to do it, but irresistibly he was finally drawn back into the ministry. But maybe that's not you, maybe you're not called to be a pastor um, but we all are generally called to evangelism, are we not? In the general sense, like Jonah, who was called to go. And it's interesting, he was only told to preach the bad news of the good news. He didn't even tell them, he, wasn't even, he said, preach, preach against them. But for many of us, we're afraid, aren't we? As Jonah was. He didn't want to go to that city. We're afraid to speak about God to our neighbors. Uh, for many reasons, we may be afraid of rejection. Uh, we may be afraid that they will openly ridicule us and say, that's ridiculous, uh, you belong in the Middle Ages, welcome to 2007, people don't think that way anymore, you're backwards. Or it might just be a subtle, oh, you're the weird religious guy, didn't know that, we'll just nod in the neighborhood from now on. Or maybe you think that they'll have a pretty good reception to it, um, but it's just awkward to talk about, isn't it? It's just an awkward breach in the conversation to bring it up. See, our sin and our resistance is no less absurd uh, than Jonah's, even though we know we've been called. Or maybe it's not just evangelism. Any sin at all is resistance to God, and any sin is extreme. Anytime that you do something knowingly or unknowingly, where you, where you as a believer say, I know God says not to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to fudge the numbers on my tax return, or I'm going to tell a little white lie to the neighbor to make my family feel a little bit better, or to protect our reputation. All sorts of things are illogical. They're extreme. They're absurd resistance to God. But the good news is that while we see in this passage Jonah's resistance, we also see God's persistence. Let's look at verse 11. Then they said to him, the sailors, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Stop right there. First, God is persistent 
with Jonah, the person. When they say, what's going on here? Jonah knows the answer. There is a sea that is heaving up and down, a storm that is raging. Why is this storm here, Jonah, prophet? Because of me. God is pursuing Jonah by manipulating the physical forces of nature in spite of the fact that he's heading in the opposite direction, which any of us, if my brother Steve got on a plane to Dulles, we'd say, uh, void the check, you're not getting our support, you're done, enjoy Canada, A. <laughs> but not God. He manipulates the wind and the waves to bring Jonah back. He's persistent with his person. But going on, verse 14. Therefore, they, the sailors, called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The Lord is not just persistent with Jonah's person. He's persistent with his purpose. Look at this. Moments ago, each of these men are calling out to his own God, lowercase g, and they tell Jonah, call out to your lowercase g, God. And here, they call out to the Lord, or Yahweh, the personal covenant name of God, O Lord, Yahweh, O Lord, again, have for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. And then, what do they do? They fear the Lord exceedingly, and they offer sacrifice to the Lord and make vows. Those are words of conversion. Those are words of repentance. Those are words of commitment to God. They're calling him by his personal name all of a sudden. When moments ago they were sacrificing to idols. Jonah the prophet, in spite of himself, is spreading God's kingdom. Uh, I had a friend in seminary and he's now a church planter uh, in, in South St. Louis. And uh, when he, he was converted as an adult, his name is Jay. And when Jay was first converted, he was very zealous for evangelism. And he had one friend, several friends, but one in particular that, in Jay's words, uh, Jay would badger with the gospel. And he would, he would just always be in his face. Any conversation they had, any time they had lunch, Jay wanted to talk about Jesus, and that's all he wanted to talk about, to the point of being obnoxious. And his friend was very resistant. He said, you know, I just I don't want this. And then they were apart for a few years, and Jay matured a little bit, and they went to seminary, and he had been to seminary for one year, and First time he had been exposed to biblical teaching and some theology, and he had gotten a hold of this concept uh, called predestination or election, where the scripture talks about God choosing people for salvation from the foundation of the earth. And he had kind of gotten a loose hold of that, and the friends were together at a little reunion. They were playing cards, and his friend said, you know, Jay, you used to talk to me about Jesus all the time. Uh, you know, you want to talk about that now? And it was just... This ridiculous moment of, of a softball pitch in an evangelism class. You know, tell me about Jesus, Jay. I would like to know him. And Jay looked, at, looked up from his cards and said, you know, truthfully, you're either chosen or you're not, so there's no point in even talking about it. <laughs> this is a true story. Um, you know, who says that? Who would, who would ever say that? 
Um, my friend Jay, the church planter, would say that. Um, he was serious, and they, they continued to play cards. Uh, what an what a absurd thing for him to say. What a shockingly resistant thing where the scripture very clearly tells us to tell others about Jesus. I mean, you would think ex- ex- explicitly when they're interested, you know. Um, and uh, what a resistant thing. An extreme and absurd thing to do. Um, and yet, a couple years later, he said he saw the same friend at a wedding. And the friend came up to him and said this. Jay, I have not been able to stop thinking about what you said when we were playing cards. How bizarre. See, his friend had thought all along in the, in the badgering that, that there was something he could do. That he could kind of hold out for that deathbed repentance or something. You know, There was some way where he could make this conversion thing happen on his own. And it was troubling him that maybe he was chosen and maybe he wasn't. The absurdity of what Jay Simmons said. And yet God was persistent, nurturing Jay, bringing him along to see the folly of what he said, and yet persistent in the purpose of Jay, and bringing that man to himself. Uh, What a remarkable thing. And it's good news for us to know that even when we blow it, extremely, absurdly, God is at work building his kingdom. Uh, But the story goes on. Let's move forward. Uh, Chapter 2, Jonah's in the belly of the whale, and he prays, or or the fish, and the fish spits him back out. We're not going to get caught on the extras, not looking in the background. Uh, Some question that prayer, whether it's sincere, whether it's repentant. Uh, Read it for yourself. Think about it. We're going to skip on to chapter 3. So he's gone into the whale, or the fish, and now he's out. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah, chapter 3, the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh. Sound familiar? That great city, and call out against call out against it the message I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. So he's obeying. Now Nineveh was exceeding, was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, "Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown." And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And then skip down to verse 9. The king says, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Remarkable, God continuing to be at work through his stubborn prophet. And yet, the story continues. And just think how thrilled we would be if, if we got a report from a missionary that an entire city and the, the leader or the king of the nation that they had gone to was repenting and calling on God. We would be delighted, would we not? For chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased, it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and he said, O oh Lord, Is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under the shade till he could see what would become of the city. 
Here we see not just Jonah's resistance, but Jonah's resentment. It's bizarre. It is strange. People are being converted, and he's mad. He's angry, whereas before we talked about being afraid to tell people because they're going to mock you, he was afraid to tell people because they might receive it and believe. And then as he sets up the booth in in verse 5, Jonah's still kind of holding out to a little thread of hope that maybe God will change his mind again and, and really blast these people. He's looking for some Sodom and Gomorrah. Fire and brimstone is what he wants to see. He wants a front row seat for the fireworks show. That's what he's doing. He's that resentful. He's angry. He says, it would be better for me to die. It's bizarre. How do we do that? When we think, no, who could possibly be this self-righteous, right? Let me ask you, um, are you ever resentful when someone is converted? Of course not. I had a friend, another friend. I won't use his name. Uh, And he grew up in a Christian home, and sort of from his earliest age, he was just a good kid. And he kind of had kept the straight and narrow and had done well, and he was a believer and loved the Lord. And when he got to college, some of his friends from high school, or acquaintances, I should say, from high school, who were kind of the party kids, the bad kids, doing the stuff they shouldn't do, well, they were converted. And they came to know Jesus, and it was pretty remarkable. And they were a part of the campus ministry he was in, and he had a hard time with it. He had a sense of watching their freedom and the joy that they had and thinking, doesn't that belong to me and not them? Sort of an older brother mentality. No offense. Um, (laughs) uh, Just kidding. Um, A resentful spirit and in a sort of a subtle way in seeing something that they had that he didn't. And sort of a sense that they get to be full members of this club, this church. After all that, and what do I have to show for my obedience for all those years while they were out partying? Well, maybe you won't do that, or maybe you can't think of an example, but let me ask you this. Are you quick to forgive another believer? Or are there times when you know that they are forgiven by God, but you're going to kind of hold on? And say, I know God forgives you, but you need to pay a little bit longer with me. It's the same thing. It's it's really no different than Jonah's setting up a booth to watch the fireworks, holding on, hoping that God will be just on those sinners rather than gracious and merciful and compassionate as he has been to us. But it goes on. Verse 6. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. It's the only moment in the entire book when Jonah is presented as being happy in any way. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die, and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry for, angry, angry enough to die. 
Let me ask you this. You may not be resentful when people come to know the Lord. Are you resentful when your creature comforts are taken away? I am. Very much. What's your shady plant? What's... Now notice God gives him the shady plant, and it's a good thing. He gives it to him so that he won't be uncomfortable. So things like shady plants are good from God. A blessing to be enjoyed. But notice what happens the moment it's taken away. I wish I was dead, says Jonah. I think very often I'm, I'm more concerned. I told this to the, to the campus ministry when I preached on Jonah over at William & Mary. Very often I'm much more worried about the next album I'm going to put on my iPod than I am about the souls of my neighbors. On any given day, I'm thinking a lot more about that. I would much rather increase my standard of living in subtle ways and inch my way up because that, after all, is the American dream. And you can sympathize here with Jonah. I mean, it's hot. God appoints a scorching wind, and if you've ever been out in the heat for very long, it's not pleasant. You can see why he's so frustrated but he's resentful. He's resentful of the conversions and he is resentful when his creature comforts are taken away. And we're a lot like him. Probably more than we care to admit. Uh, but there's good news. That while Jonah is resentful, we see Jonah's resentment. We also see God's compassion. The story goes on. Jonah says he'd rather be dead. Verse 10. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? We see here God's tremendous compassion for the city of Nineveh, even though his prophet is resentful and resistant and that number, 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left, that was, a, that was a way of saying children, small children. So there's 120,000 children alone in this great city. We can only estimate how many adults and, and, and the total number. But not only does God have compassion on the children, he even takes time to mention the cattle. There are animals there. Shouldn't I care about them? Which, by the way, that, that makes it okay for you to care for your animals if you have pets. God cares about animals. God cares about people. And yet Jonah is angry about a little tree. See, the good news is that even when we don't care, even when we don't have compassion, God does. He cares deeply for the city of Nineveh. He cares deeply about your neighbor's the good news is that God loves the students at the College of William and Mary a lot more than I do. And God's heart for the people in Guadalajara is far greater than my brother's. And his heart for the city of Williamsburg is far greater than yours. And that's good news. He has compassion for others. It's seen most clearly in Jesus. In Mark chapter 9, as Jesus gets off the boat, it says that he saw the crowds harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, and he had compassion on them, or it says, most literally, he was heartbroken over them. He loves 
when we don't. But not only that, he has compassion on the people, but he also has compassion on Jonah. Because what's he doing? He gives him a plant, right? He brought him out of the belly of the fish, right? He gave him a plant for his comfort. And even in taking the plant, and even in appointing the scorching wind to burn Jonah's head, what is he doing? See, there's a great contrast and a great irony throughout this book. So far, we've talked about the contrast between Jonah and God. But there's also a a bitter and sad irony. Back to the boat, Jonah is hard-hearted, and yet the pagans who are worshiping idols repent. And here in Nineveh, the most wicked city, the arch enemy of God's people, even their king puts on sackcloth and ashes, and the people repent and call on God, and yet the representative of God's people the prophet will not repent. God, throughout this whole story, is drawing Jonah to himself and saying, look at what I'm like. Look at what you're like. See how they repent. Will you repent? That's the message of the book of Jonah. The good news is that God is at work and that God is building his kingdom and he is resilient He is persistent in his compassion and he will build his kingdom and he calls us into that to use us in it through our repentance. God is at work. So we must repent. Let's do that now. Lord God, we thank you for your faithfulness, for your pursual of your people. Thank you that you don't give up on us. Thank you that you are true to your word and that you love the lost. All of us at one point in time were just that. We thank you, Lord, and pray that you be with us now as we taste freshly your grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you take your bulletins, as we prepare our hearts, as the Apostle Paul